0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. ourselves living in a rather interesting day so 500 years ago on October 31st a uh, Augustinian monk who became a teacher nailed something that's called the 95 theses on a church door in Wittenberg Germany and perhaps you're asking why that matters to us today I mean, really, you're talking about 500 years ago, what's what's the big deal about this? And you maybe have even seen things on social media right now, it's become kind of a a buzzword almost, Um, but what we are celebrating uh, is what we call the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was built on five solas. Uh, Those five solas are... Sola Scriptura. First and foremost, that the scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Um, if you've been coming to Mercy Hill for a while, you've probably noticed that in my language. I use it rather frequently because I'm convinced that it is the benchmark of faithful Christianity. When we say we believe the word of God is the only true authority for the church, it alone is the true authority for the church. Secondly, we find uh, sola Christus that Christ alone is able to mediate between God and man. And we're going to walk through each of these, but I want to bring these to your attention really quickly because I want you to understand where these come from um, and then we'll walk through them together. So you've got sola Christus, you've got sola gratia. It's by grace alone that men are saved. The only way that men come to faith in Christ is through the grace that Christ has purchased for them. Fourthly, we have sola fide. It's only by faith that we are saved. Only through faith. Not a matter of works, not a matter of our good deeds or anything like that, but only through faith that men can actually be counted as righteous. Lastly, it's soli deo gloria. And this is a simple um, phrase that has jam-packed in it all types of meanings, but basically the concept is this. All glory is for God and God alone because he is the only one who Worthy to receive glory. In every area, but in in this particular uh, system, what we're talking about is how God alone is to receive glory in salvation. Meaning that when all is said and done, we stand before the throne of God on the day of great glory or dread, depending on whether you have trusted Christ or not, we will stand before him and we will not look at him and say, I'm bringing something to the table here. I've done something to contribute to my salvation. Instead, we're going to look at him and say, God, you did literally everything. I am simply a glad recipient of your grace. Now The reason this is so important still today is because what was happening 500 years ago still happens today. And you may think that we've wandered away from it, but let me give you the background information and then we'll maybe put it in a modern day perspective so that we can understand why this is still relevant and so important to how we live and what we believe about the scriptures. So uh, about 500 years ago, there was this tradition that took place. Um, There was a monk who watched these things. They watched, in particularly, the thing called the selling of indulgences. Now, what was happening at this period of time, the Catholic Church was aiming to build new facilities. They were ultimately longing to have a little bit more money. And so, because the Catholic Church alone had copies of the scriptures, they could essentially say whatever they wanted. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that a lot of times it's much easier to pastor an immature church. If you don't go home and read your Bibles, I can essentially stand up here and say whatever I want and, and you know, you're just going to accept it. And what we found in this day was that was the case whether the people wanted it to be or not. They didn't have a copy of God's word in their own language. It was written in Latin and only the highly intelligent clergy people of that nature had these. And so the Catholic Church essentially guarded the scriptures and would not allow anyone else to read them and study them themselves. It's a terrible thing. And so Martin Luther begins to say, you know, I've been studying the scriptures in Latin for so long, I want to look at it in its original languages. He called it ad fontes, back to the sources. I'm going to go to the New Testament as it was written. I'm going to go to the Greek and I'm going to go to the Hebrew and that's where I'm going to get what I believe about Christianity. And as he did this, he began to see some major contradictions. He began to see that what the Catholic Church was teaching and what was actually written in the scriptures were incredibly different. And if that be the case, then there was no room for these things called the selling of indulgences. And let me give you a little bit of background information on this, because hopefully this appalls you as much as it appalls me. That what was happening was there were men going around saying things like, um, the, moment, um, the moment the coin rings, a soul from purgatory flings. That you can essentially buy your loved one's way into heaven with coin. I mean, by giving something financially, you were able to purchase your way into eternity, not only for yourself, but also for others. And so people were flocking by the droves to throw their money at people because they had loved ones. They weren't sure of their eternal destination. And so, and so I can throw my money at this and my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my children might be removed from purgatory and, and embraced by God. And so Martin Luther's head begins to explode at this idea. He's incredibly frustrated. He's angry about what's being done. And so he walks up to a church door and he nails 95 theses, 95 statements of faith that are saying, hey, we need to discuss these things. He was not trying to introduce this great eruption, this Protestant Reformation. Instead, what he was simply trying to do is bring very important things to the table so the church could begin to discuss them. Now, he had at that time students who were a little bit more zealous than he was, and they took those, and they began to translate them into the German, and they sent them out, because at this point in time, a printing press had been invented, so they're able to circulate these things all throughout Germany, and even past that, and so they're beginning to see these things, and all of a sudden, people are thinking, wait, this is right, and this great turmoil erupts, and then Luther translates the uh, the, the scriptures into German and begins to hand them out to people. And, and all of a sudden the saints have a copy of God's word themselves. And they're beginning to see these great distinctions. And the primary thing that was discussed was over salvation, was over justification. Is it by faith and grace alone? Or is it by works? Now you may look at that and say, well, we're clearly uh, past that, but I'm telling you friends, we are not, we are not past that. To this day, as tragic as it is for me to say this, but I am convinced of it, that there are pulpits today that will preach that salvation is something that you do. I I guarantee it. Not only are there pulpits that are doing that, I, I will tell you for certainty that there are pulpits in our county, certainly in our state, and absolutely in our country. And far past that. What we must understand is the Protestant Reformation is not over. It is still necessary for us to go and to preach the gospel in its true form, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, if you know, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, if you've gone through the journey with us in our values, you understand that we're expository here, meaning that we take a scripture and we walk through it verse by verse. And I think that Ephesians chapter 2 is perhaps one of the clearest passages on justification by faith alone. So, if you would, stand in the honor of the reading of God's word Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you have gifted the church with your word. And as we come to it, Lord, we come bowing before its authority, trusting that it alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. And as we come, Lord, we ask you, um, convey truth to our hearts from it. Make it clear to us that Christ alone is worthy of worship and that you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory and salvation. And so, Father, I, I come confessing weakness and frailty before you, just a man. But, Lord, what comfort that everyone who stands in a pulpit has to trust the infallibility of your word, that it never returns void, that it always accomplishes the purpose that you have set out for it. And so, Father, as we walk through this passage, would you convey great truth to us? Lord, if we be in Christ, let us rejoice in the grace that's been bestowed to us, free grace, unmerited favor. And if we are not, Father, my prayer is that as we walk through this, they would see their great need for Christ. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray, amen really the the, the vast majority of what we're going to talk about is going to be in verse four and following. But before we go there, there's a foundation that has to be laid on why it's actually grace. Um, And so uh, as a general rule, men have high opinions of themselves, way higher than what we find in scripture, that ultimately scripture teaches that man is desperately wicked, who can know it, that no one seeks after God, all have turned aside together, but have become worthless. And so what we find in scripture conveys an idea of humanity after the fall that we are enslaved And captive to sin, and that we, apart from God doing a great work in our life, um, will continue to rebel against Him all our days. So, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul lays this out. And so, I've got to lay this foundation for you, and then we'll look at the idea of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. So, in verse 1, it says this, and you were dead. trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's walk through this really quickly and just kind of give you the foundation of man's state apart from what Christ has accomplished for you. This is really, really important. If we get this wrong, we're gonna look at the grace of God and we're gonna essentially say, it's not actually grace, I earned it by simply being a little bit better than the person next to me. That's not the case at all. I want you to notice there is no exemption here. There's no, hey, this is the Gentile state, this is the Jew state. That's not the case at all. And you were dead. He is making reference to every individual who at one point was dead in their trespasses and sins, which is every human soul. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and thus we fall under the condemnation that we find in Ephesians 2 1 through 3. Let's look at it just to kind of paint a clear picture of who we actually are apart from Jesus. First and foremost, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Won't that just bless you this morning? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I want you to consider for just a minute, and we're going to come back to this, because I want you to see the state. I want you to understand really how far, how low we actually were, even to the point where Paul makes reference to you were dead. Not incapacitated, not weak, not sick. You were dead meaning that you were completely and totally incapable of doing anything that might rescue yourself. Have you ever seen a person who is having a heart attack give themselves CPR? The answer is no. If you have, I need to see that. Um, But I mean, there's nothing that someone who is dead or even at the point of Dying is able to do to rescue themselves. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is not only were you dead, you were enabled, completely and totally enabled to rescue yourself. It means that someone outside of yourself has to come and do a work. The same way that when uh, someone is sick and ill and on the deathbed, we hope that someone is able to come and do something to bring them to life, we always look to an external source. And so in the exact same way Paul's making this case, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then he goes as far to say, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, for some reason, people misunderstand this passage. This ultimately means that you are at enmity with God. So currently, just from these two verses, you are a dead enemy. It's a great place to be. That's how we earn God's favor, right? Being a dead enemy. And so it says you follow the coarse world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me make this abundantly clear to you that if you are not in Christ, you are not on neutral ground. For some reason, we like to think that when people are born, they're born kind of with this zero sum, that you're you you're not negative, you're not positive, you're just simply somewhere in the middle, but that's not at all what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that if you are born, you are ultimately dead on arrival in the sense that you are a sinner in desperate need of redemption, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and that you are not riding the fence with God. Instead, you are actually his enemy. Now, let me make this abundantly clear and give you a picture of it. In Genesis chapter three, all of us probably are familiar with this passage. We call it the fall. Adam and Eve are standing in the garden where they look around and see all the beautiful things that God has given them. Uh, it, it even goes to the point to say that the Lord God made to spring up from the ground every tree that was a delight to the eye and good for food. But there was one tree they were forbidden of eating of. We call it the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve traips over to it and a snake is talking to Eve, which I'm still confounded as to why Adam did not say, hey, that's a snake, we should not be here and it's talking to you, this is a little weird. But what you find is Adam and Eve ultimately take the authority and the word of a serpent over the authority and the word of God. He was clear. Every tree, look around, everyone, I have made it beautiful, it's a delight to the eye, it's good for food. Any tree you want, you eat it, but not this one, you just stay away from this one and we're good. But they rebel. Now, that's not neutral ground they have found themselves on. They are not riding the fence here. They have chosen to obey, to listen to the word of God's enemy over his perfect word. Does that put you on neutral ground? The answer is no. It makes you an enemy. You know, we like to look at passages like this and say, you know, we're not really an enemy. Yes, you are enmity with God. Scripture actually says literally that verbatim. And he wants in the flesh an enmity with God. And so what you see here is we are dead enemies of God who abuse the good things he's given us. This verse three, and I think um, there's three different terms for sin in the scriptures. There's sin, there's trespasses, and there's iniquity. Iniquity is um, one thing that I'm convinced that the enemy, Satan, has mastered. It's taking the good things that God has given and twisted them and making them something wicked. In verse three, and we have learned that from him, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, that all the good and perfect things that God has given us, we have twisted and we have made them wicked. It's called iniquity. If you would like to view this, um, there are various ways. For instance, currently in our culture, there is a great iniquity, what we call the the sexual revolution, that we have taken a gift that God has given us, we have either made it God and we bow down before that it becomes our identity over who we are in Christ. Another way to see this is, frankly, at a buffet, where you see a good gift that God has given us and we abuse it to the point of harming our bodies by the way that we eat. It's another simple one. No Baptist likes to hear that one. Um, uh, But... This is what iniquity is. This is who we are. And look at what it says. If that's who we are, you'll find in the end of verse three, and we're by nature children of wrath. The only thing, I want you to hear this from me, the only thing the human soul, apart from the finished work of Jesus, is due from God is his wrath and fury. Do not be mistaken. Do not presume on the riches of his kindness as many do. They look to God and they think to himself, well, he's just gonna let me slide by and not actually be just to me. You are a fool. I I love you. And I will not allow you to believe that. Because you will stand before God on that great day and he will say, away with you, you evildoer, I never knew you. Because the only means by which men are able to enter into the throne room of God with confidence, the only means by which we will enter access into that great kingdom of God is through the finished work of Christ because our debt must be paid, it must be paid in full, and we are incapable of doing that. We are by nature children of wrath. That's the foundation of this. It's called, it's proper understanding, proper anthropology, what we believe about man. The beauty of it is, for some reason, God in his infinite grace looks on dead enemies who abuse his perfect gift and say, I want that one. This is why we say sola gratia. It is by grace alone that you are saved. Explain to me in verses 1 through 3 where we can find something that would make God attracted to us so that he might bestow faith on us, that he might grant us salvation. There is nothing there There is nothing here that would attract the perfect, holy, righteous, flawless God to a creature that has rebelled against Him to such an extent that we are corpses who are still somehow rebelling against Him. It simply cannot be found in verses 1 through 3. And frankly, I dare for you to look through the entirety of Scripture and find me one thing where someone did something to attract God to themselves. We can go all the way back to Genesis. Let's take the very first call that God gives to man. In Genesis chapter 3, God comes down to dwell amongst Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve have already sinned, they're covering themselves, they're hiding in bushes because they're afraid to be in the presence of God. Who initiates that relationship? Where are you? He says. Adam and Eve are doing everything they can to flee from his presence. God calls, where are you? What about Abraham? Abraham was called out of the land of Ur. Who initiated it? God did. He called him out. Moses, as he's fleeing and and scared in the desert, he sees a, a burning bush and God calls him out. All of Israel is called out in this way, the exact same way that he calls out Jacob to be Israel. Even as Jacob is a cheater, his name in and of itself points to his depravity, that he is completely and totally unworthy of anything that God would bestow on him. Even to the point where God begins relationship with him and, and, and Jacob puts stipulations on whether or not I will actually serve the God who I'm speaking to. Show me something in the scripture where we see men run to God before God does a work. It simply cannot be found. Because this is who we are. Dead in our trespasses and sins. It's been this way since Genesis 3. So how then can men be saved? And we go to the solas. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace and grace alone will any soul be saved. You will not come before God, present your good deeds and that make him bestow favor on you. His grace is good and it is sovereign. He gives it as he wishes ultimately that he might be glorified through his bestowing it. That he chooses the most wicked, the most frail things which are not the weak, the foolish and he bestows his grace on them. That way when people look at these fallen people who at one point or another were completely depraved, haters of God, and all of a sudden they have a deep love and affection for God. There's this transition in their life that is the unmerited favor of God granted toward these sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. And friends, I would urge you, maybe even consider your own circumstances. I'm no fool, I, I knew myself before I was saved. And I'll be honest with you, the number one question I find myself asking from time to time is, Lord, why in the world would you rescue me? I know the extent of my depravity. I know even today in my own Fallen nature, even though God has rescued and redeemed me, I still have this internal struggle with sin, this war. And it's only by the grace of God that I am brought into his family and only by the grace of God that I am kept there. The only means by which we will run and finish the race that God has given us is by grace alone. Notice the language here. Even when you were dead in the trespasses and sins, God saved you. Look at verse five. "'Made us alive together with Christ. "'By grace you have been saved.'" I want you to see the language here. That even when we were dead, even when we were wicked, when there's absolutely nothing in us to attract God to us, he looked at you and said, I'm going to rescue that one. I'm going to bring him into my family. That's the basic understanding of grace alone. There is nothing that I do to merit God's favor in my life. He simply gives it. And the beauty of this is... That not only is it that our good works are not brought before him, but that means also there is no measure of wickedness that we can have that would make him reject us. It is by grace and grace alone that you are saved, meaning that for all of your days, even as you come into right relationship with him, one of the greatest tragedies I hear of believers who have come to faith in Christ and they sin, they fall short and they feel like God's hovering over them and ready to strike and end them. It's by grace you have been saved and it's by grace you were kept. There's nothing that you can do to break that from him. It is given by him freely to you from the source of his love. Now, I gotta talk about this. This is not a solo, but it's an important one. I want you to notice the language. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, I want you to understand the grace he gives has one grand background. It flows from one source and it is his love. I need you to understand this because I truly do not believe the saint is free until they understand the love of God cannot be altered in their case. The same way that as we consider things like marriage, And I'm convinced that everything we have here is a shadow. When we look at the concept of marriage, that Christ loves us and gave himself up for us, that there's nothing we can do to break that covenant because we serve a God of covenants. It means that when we fail, the covenant stands and the God who is faithful will continue to be faithful to the promises that he's made. I love, uh, I believe it's uh, 2 Timothy, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. His love for you is rooted in his person and he is the immutable, unchangeable God, which means that his love cannot be altered cannot be altered. And so it is by grace you have been saved. This flows from his love for his saints, for his people, for his church. Now, how then do we but how do we receive this grace? Now I'm going to point out a couple of things here and I and I may I hope I don't rub people too wrong here, but I want you to understand where we're coming from. So look at verse eight. Then we're going to walk through the idea of faith and faith alone and then we're going to look at the source of our faith, the object of our faith. So in verse eight it says this by grace you have been saved through faith This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now it's kind of grace and faith kind of have a little bit of neutral ground. They're kind of overlapping just a little bit, but I need you to understand that the reason God bestows grace on you is because faith is birthed in your life. Now, I have to make a couple of distinctions here. that are very, very important distinctions. And I'm gonna hopefully not drive you all crazy on this. Faith is not something that we muster up. Now let me make a case for this real quickly. What I mean by that is it is not something that we bring to the table so that God will then give us grace. We don't, we're not the initiators of this, right? So Philippians chapter one says, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion going all the way back to looking at the ideas of God calling. He doesn't call them out because they've done something to attract them. He instead gives them a gift that leads into other things. So what we have to understand is we are not the initiators of salvation. God is. He is the grand initiator of absolutely everything. It has its root in His eternality. Anything that has a start, its start is with Him. Think about creation for just a moment. The folly of people who believe that nothing came, that something came from nothing. I still do not understand the logic behind that. Everything that has a beginning has its beginning in the eternal God, it cannot start in any other way. Meaning that when the cosmos was just nothingness, he spoke it into being. He is the grand originator of all things. But for some reason, we look at salvation and from time to time in history and and frankly, uh, more frequent than I care to admit, it drives me nuts that for some reason we remove that from salvation. We are the initiators. We start it. Now let me go ahead and hopefully take an ax to that for you. Notice this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? So faith comes and and then grace is bestowed upon us. But I want you to notice the language here because some people will argue that grace is the gift. So uh, grace is the gift, not faith, the issue is what you find in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is it's one sentence. It's one major thought block, and so we have to kind of do a little exegesis. We have to pay close attention to the language here. But I want you to basically look at the argument that Paul is making here and how that fundamentally disagrees with the argument. You would have to look at this and say, Paul's getting a little confusing here. He, he's, he himself must be confused which we know cannot be the case because this is the inspired scripture. God ordained it and Paul writes as he is carried along by the spirit of God and the spirit of God is not confused. And so what does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice this, this is not your own doing. Now let's just make the argument, let's just assume that's talking about grace. Grace is the thing that's not your own doing. Okay, so uh, God looking at us and bestowing favor on us, that's completely of his own accord, his own sovereign choice, sure. But then we have this, so faith is something I do. Let's assume that for a moment. Verse nine, not a result of works that no one may boast. You see the friction in the argument if faith is something we do here? That all of a sudden we're saying, yeah, um, so it's not a result of works that no one may boast. And for some reason we call it faith and so we say it's apart from works. But friends, if you do it, it's a work. No matter what you want to call it, if you do it, it's a work. And so when we come before God, we can say, Lord, thank you for bestowing grace on me after I had faith in you. Who, who's the initiator? And let me tell you why this is so important because this ultimately comes down to the very last solo, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Friends, if you initiate it, we can't say that. We can't. Sure, you pave the way. You have grace, but only if I am the grand initiator of it. And so, my friends, I want you to understand that as we look to God and we say, Lord, I love you, I'm so grateful for the salvation you've provided for me, the only way that we can say soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone is if we look at him as the grand initiator, the one who preserves us through salvation and keeps us till the end. If there's any participation from man in it, then we have to look at him whether we want to admit this or not. We say soli deo gloria, but just a little bit for me. And I want you to understand this is birth in the inclination of the human heart for self-righteousness. The very first thing Adam and Eve do when they fall is they clothe themselves. Their clothing is not sufficient and God must do a work in them to clothe them. They needed God to do a work. It doesn't matter how hard they try it. It doesn't matter how pretty their fig leaves are. Ultimately, God must do the work. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It starts, it is preserved and, it compl- and it's completed by his grace alone. And the faith that he gives us to place our great affection, our joy, everything that we long for in him is a gift that he gives us. It is new life. It's called regeneration. He grants regeneration that the heart that is turned against him may look at him and say, You are my greatest affection when 30 seconds ago you were my enemy. But now I have a great love for you. That is faith granted as a gift from God to his people that they might love and cherish the grace that he has given to us and long to have fellowship with the Christ that he has provided that we might enjoy him forever. So we are saved by grace alone, unmerited favor. We are saved by faith alone, not a result of works, not a result of anything that we bring to the table. It is simply his sovereign hand, rescue and redeeming for him a people. Lastly, we are saved in Christ alone. This is where Luther and various others got so frustrated. There was always this gap of, yes, you need Christ. And I'm telling you, there's always been this gap. This goes back to New Testament. This was not new in the days of Luther. There's always been this idea of, I need Jesus and. I need Jesus and something else. And this day, the Judaizers were saying, you need Jesus and circumcision. You need Jesus and adherence to the law. You need to, yes, you need to trust Jesus for grace, but you need to do something else. It's called cooperative grace, that ultimately God's given me grace, but if I don't cooperate with it, then it's not gonna be attributed to me. This was seen in the sacramental system where you do certain things and God bestows upon you extra grace. And it's almost to the point where you've got this grand scale. And let me tell you what's fundamentally wrong with this scale First and foremost is your sin deserves an eternal amount of wrath regardless. If you have one, then guess what? It does not matter if you do one or a jillion, that's not a real number, but nonetheless, you still are in need of an infinite grace because that that one sin is worthy of the eternal wrath of God in your life. And the only reason we don't believe those things anymore is because we have a poor view of the holiness of God and we have a poor or a high view of man and we think sin's something to wink at more often than not. And so what you find here is the grand need of someone who is actually able to save. That means that Christ, his work was efficient, for the saint meaning that it was not something that he did to make something possible it is not something he did to kind of give you a door that you could traipse through instead he did it to actually bring you into the family that's the beauty of the gospel we look at the cross of christ and we cannot look at it and say lord you tried real hard i know you didn't save everybody you intended to i just I, like i just i just can't we have to look at the cross of christ and say he failed it's not what we see all throughout the scripture we see a god who is able to do whatever he so chooses to do. His plans cannot be thwarted. They cannot be removed. They cannot be broken. And so when Christ comes to pay a debt, he pays it in full and he does it effectively. The beauty of this is seen in Matthew one twenty one, the grand promise given before the incarnation ever happened. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. He is able and so we say, "Sola Christus." Now let's look at his work because this is the beauty of it. There's all of all of what we find in Ephesians chapter two lays out everything so perfectly. This, this this incredible salvation that God has provided, free from our work, but completely and totally dependent on His. So in verse four, it says, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with." Christ our life everything that we have everything that is given to us in a spiritual life is given to us by his finished work and I want you to see this really clearly the very the start of this passage you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and now because of the finished work of Jesus you've been made alive essentially what's happened is he has born and suffered your death that you might enjoy his life that you might be able to embrace that fully and totally, that the life that you have, and friends, we have to understand this, that we will live our lives in a worthy manner, the life you have is not yours. It's not. The only thing that the sinner deserves, we've mentioned this before, is the wrath of God. Any breath that you breathe flows only from his grace that he bestows upon you. patience not wishing that any would perish but all would come to repentance my sweet friends the life you have is given to you by our grand mediator the one who is actually able to stand in the gap the one who bought every privilege you have Ephesians 1 makes reference to blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places not a single one will be withheld from the saint who trusts Christ all the privileges are in Him completely. He is our mediator. He is the one who stands in the gap. I want you to continue to see this. So the life that we have is given to us by Christ. We say, Lord, Lord, the life I live, it's, it's, it's solely Christ It's all to the glory of Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. That this new life that we have is transformative. It does a great work in us. It is something that is sanctifying, meaning the way that we live our lives now is completely transformed to the way that we once lived. We have been given a new life and he has raised us in a unique way that we're able to dwell and enjoy his presence. This is the idea of you being dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, that you were in the grave, but he made you alive and he removes you from it. The beauty of the gospel is he never ever leaves you where you were. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ's life that he purchased for you, he also is going to pave the way for you to live it in a manner worthy of the gospel. He raised us up with him. Now listen to this foolishness that we find in verse seven. So that in the coming ages, forgive me, still in verse six, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we actually are able to enjoy his presence. And I want you to realize this real quickly. Just as I mentioned a moment ago, the idea that you were dead in the trespasses and sins, that you were at enmity with God, all of a sudden we're dwelling with him. And we love it. I'm just going to make this statement real quickly if you do not delight in the presence of god if you do not delight in his word if you do not cherish christ above everything this world has to offer if he is not your highest value heaven will be incredibly uncomfortable for you for he is the centerpiece the sole object of worship And I would go so far as to argue that if you say that you love Jesus, but you do not delight in him, if he is not your joy, then I would argue perhaps that you do not know him at all. For to know him is to love him. There is no in between. So we are raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. All of this is given to us, a gift by Christ. Verse 7 this is the most ridiculous statement in all of Scripture. And I want you to. You're going to hear me say that from time to time because I I not only know what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, I also know my own life. I know how wicked and how much I have rebelled against God because of the finished work of Jesus. We see this in verse 7, "...so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." The purpose of giving you life, the purpose of raising you and seating with you in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages you might be blessed by the immeasurable greatness of his kindness that was purchased for you by Christ. Think about this. It makes perfect sense that the salvation that we've been provided is that we might wait the tables of God in heaven. That is not the case at all. Instead, what you see is the salvation that Christ has purchased for us is one that throughout the coming ages God longs that He may show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. My sweet friends, the beauty of Solus Christus, the beauty of Christ alone, is that it cannot even be fully displayed here. You have 77 ish years, the average lifespan on the earth. The beauties and the glories of the work of Christ cannot be conveyed to you in that amount of time. You actually need eternity for it. The inexhaustible God. The beauty of the gospel is that it is actually something that will keep you to the end and it will enthrall your soul throughout all eternity. It is not something to be treated lightly. It's not something to gloss over. It is the heart cry, the grandest affection of the saint. That is why we say solus Christus. He provides absolutely everything necessary for salvation. In the days of Luther, there were men who said that they were the mediators. They were the ones who stood in the gap between God and man. That they would be the ones who bestowed things like the Lord's Supper. They would be the ones who essentially bestowed grace on others. Friends, you need no better priest. That's why, don't call me a priest. I'm not a priest. But the beautiful thing is we have a grand and faithful high priest whose reign will never, ever end. And throughout the coming ages, he will always mediate your case. He is your grand advocate. And friends, the beauty of faith, the beauty of grace is first and foremost its object. The beauty of faith is its object. That the eyes of the saint are forever fixed on the inexhaustible, perfect, flawless, radiant Christ who is able to rescue and redeem you to an extent that throughout all of the coming ages you might be enthralled by his beauty and friends you will never ever grow weary of that. Last week we used a passage from Isaiah chapter 6 where we have angels sitting around the throne saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's interesting is you see that same case in Revelation, a little bit different, but still nonetheless, throughout all of the ages, angels sing that great song. They never grow weary because his beauty never fades. His glory never is wanting. There's nothing that is even comparable with it. And what's incredible about that, the the angels can't sing the song that we do. The angels know nothing of redemption. They know nothing of grace and they know nothing of faith. They know nothing of Christ's sacrifice except what's been, what has been, they've seen. But they don't know what it's like to be rescued and redeemed. And so my friends, when we say soli Deo Gloria, we are able to say that even when angels cannot say it to the extent that we do. Because we have experienced reconciliation. We've experienced grace and faith. We have experienced his unmerited favor, even knowing our state apart from his finished work. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would gladly say, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And my friends, if you have received this salvation, you cannot sing another song. Perhaps a moment will pass where we glory in our own works. Perhaps there'll be a brief stint where something will captivate our eyes the saint cannot go long the saint cannot go long without gladly singing all glory be to Christ. Without gladly declaring God alone is worthy of worship and praise. He alone is worthy of my affection and my delight. And the reason we are still talking about this is there are still people who look at the cross of Christ and they long to have some glory in it. It is not permissible. It is thievery in the highest form. It is looking at the God who is worthy, alone worthy of worship and praise and saying, I want my share. And I ask you this morning, is there any justification for that? Can we find in the scriptures where we say, Lord, but I, but I, but I did this. And so, soli deo gloria is the last. And I want you to see this because there is a purpose for which we are rescued here on the earth. And You'll notice it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The steps of this, when we look at the, the laying out of good works, is that throughout all our days and everything that we do, we say God alone is to receive glory and praise. The beauty is that God gives us the opportunity to do it. Just before I came up here, I was reminded of the foolishness of God allowing fallen men to preach his word. Frankly, I'm reminded of the folly that God allows ruined sinners to serve him at all, but he does so for one purpose and one purpose alone that around the throne there will be a day where each and every one of us will gladly sing, gladly sing glory to God alone and that that might be echoed here on the earth. That as we go, as we work, as we labor in the good works that he set out for us, we would be the first to proclaim God alone is worthy of worship and praise and that we might see men come to know the Christ who is able to save